ask you to take your copy of God's Word this morning, open it to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, and, and we'll be in verses 42 through 47. At big events in life, we often wonder, at a certain turning point, now what? So consider last fall, we went through a, a presidential election cycle after what seemed like an eternity of campaigning and debates and primaries and other things. There was finally an election that second Tuesday of November, and the results were known after that. President was uh, elected. And for everything that was said and everything that was done beforehand, now you get to a point where the rubber meets the road. And that night where the election results are announced, we are often left wondering, or at least I was, well, now what? All these things were said. All these promises were made. Now he's elected. Now, now what? What is this? What's the character of his presidency going to look like? Consider you who have children, the birth of a baby. For nine, ten months, you're spending preparing your house for this child while this baby is growing in its mother's womb, uh, her belly is growing larger and you're starting, she's starting to want to nest and, you know, bring together uh, cribs and things for the child. You can do all the preparation in the world, but the moment that that baby is born, everything changes and you're left wondering, now what? Even like the beginning of a Sports game, the Super Bowl is going to be played next week, which seems like an American rite of passage or almost like it should be a holiday or something. But before the game, the two teams, they've played the entire season. They've gone through all the playoffs for this moment. And the captains will gather at center field. And one of the referees, probably Gene Steratore, because he seems to uh, referee everything. Those of you who care know who he is. will flip a coin. And at the flip of the coin, it lands, and one team wins the coin toss. They choose whether to receive the ball or kick the ball. But now the game has started, and, and, and we're left with this sense of, sense of anticipation. Now what? Now what's going to happen? Here it is. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 2, where the gospel of Jesus... The gospel that Jesus was born and died and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven to deliver, that gospel has now been preached and received by 3,000 people at the, uh, near the end of Acts chapter 2, where we left off last week. 3,000 believers in Christ now are gathered together. The gospel, the, the first fruits of the gospel uh, uh, now have been realized. And the question becomes, for the church now, in a much more meaningful way than an election or a baby's birth or a coin toss at the beginning of a Super Bowl. Now what? Now what? What's going to happen? What will become of this fledgling group of believers? What will the character of the church look like? What course will their life together as believers in Jesus take? And from the outset of their gathering, we find in verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2, the character of the church. Will you stand with me as we read? God's word together. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Luke, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues his history of the early church. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So what will then be the character of the church as they gather for the first time? All of this anticipation, the the climax of Pentecost and this this surge of 3,000 new believers, what will they do? What will this group of people that will come to be known as the church do? Well, we see first in these verses that the church gathers. One of the key characteristics of the church of Jesus is that they gather They gather, first of all, because of the gospel. We know this from what we saw last week in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. The very gathering of the church is a byproduct of the response to the gospel message that Peter preached at Pentecost. He pointed people to Jesus as the Messiah who filled all of the promises that God had given to his people throughout the Old Testament. He said, this Jesus, God has made both Lord and Christ. And the people you remember are cut to the heart. They asked Peter, what then must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day, 3,000 people turn from their sins, turn in faith to Christ, are baptized to show publicly their devotion to Jesus. And the church is formed. They gather because of the gospel. These are those that are the first fruits of, uh, of the gospel ministry in the world. They gather because of the gospel. But secondly, we see in verses 42, 43, and 46 that they, gospel, they, they, they gather excuse me, for gospel teaching. They gather because of the gospel and they gather for gospel teaching. Verse 42 tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here they are literally giving themselves, devoted, making as a priority in their life time spent under the teaching or listening to the teaching that the apostles are giving. Most certainly this would have included from Peter and James and John, the others, the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures with a, through a messianic lens, looking at the Old Testament through the person of Jesus. Jesus had taught them to do this in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. There is Jesus appears to these two disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus. They, the risen Jesus appearing to them, walking with them. They don't recognize who he is until later on. But Luke chapter 24, verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things in all of the scriptures concerning himself. The apostles are teaching those who are listening that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised and proclaimed. In verse 43, we read this, that many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. These signs and wonders that are are done, done in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, is part of what the Holy Spirit would do in the apostles. Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles is leading them, is allowing them to perform many of these signs and wonders. But these signs and wonders in and of themselves uh, don't serve themselves. They serve a greater purpose, which is to validate the message of the gospel. So every time we see uh, throughout the rest of Acts, and we'll see it particularly in Acts chapter 3 as we look at it next week, a miracle being performed or a mighty work of God happening through the apostles, right on the heels of that comes a, a, a declaration of the gospel, a pointing to Jesus by the apostles, those who are pointing the signs. So the, uh, uh, the signs and the wonders that are done by the hands of the apostles are not for their own sake. They're not just to, to, to make people wonder, oh, what's going on, but to point people to Jesus. Gospel teaching is, is part of the signs and wonders that was being done. But then thirdly, in verse 46, they gather for gospel teaching in the temple. 
Verse 46 says, day by day, they were attending the temple together. The temple courts, the temple, the second temple that Herod built there in Jerusalem. The temple courts would have been the only place, the most conducive place anyway, for this church of 3,000 people to gather together. It was the only place that was large enough for 3,000 people to gather together at one time. But it was also a part of their normal Jewish practice of worship and gathering. Jews would gather regularly in the temple courts for teaching from rabbis and others. The early church at this point in Acts in Jerusalem is made up of all Jewish people at this point. The gospel has not yet been extended to the Gentiles yet. So these 3,000 Jews are continuing to do what Jews do. They're going to the house of God to worship and to hear his word teached, teached, taught. Someone needs some more teaching. So the apostles and the church are gathering together in the temple courts for gospel teaching to point people to Jesus. We see thirdly that the church gathers because of the gospel. They gather for gospel teaching, but they also in verse 42, they gather for prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Prayer is by definition a a communication with God. This is us speaking to our maker and hearing from him. The disciples were devoted to it in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 when they're gathered in that upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. And they will continue and and prayer will continue to be a deciding mark of the believers in Acts and throughout the New Testament. We're going to see over the course of the year as we work through Acts many times where the church of Jesus Christ is gathered together in devoted prayer. Prayer is not an accidental thing. It's not an incidental thing for the church. It is a vital part of their life together. Regularly, even throughout the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, the people of God that are known as the church will be commanded to continue in prayer. We don't have time to look at all of these today, but I would commend to you Colossians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, which says, pray continually or pray without ceasing. Romans 12, verse 12 as well, for the apostles' uh, commendation to the church to be devoted in prayer. The character of the church is one that gathers for, because of the gospel, for gospel teaching, for prayer, and finally, for worship and the ordinances. For worship and the ordinances. In verses 42 and 46, Luke records the church gathering together for the breaking of bread. You see that in your Bibles. This is not just eating meals together. This isn't them just getting together for a potluck, although that's not a bad idea, but... The, the church taking a particular meal together, breaking a particular bread together. This is the taking of the Lord's Supper. You remember where Jesus in the upper room on the night before he was betrayed and then arrested and the day before he would be crucified, takes bread and breaks it in front of the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. He takes a cup and says, drink of this, all of you. This is the blood, my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. The breaking of the bread that the church is devoted to here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 46, is taking the Lord's Supper together. Taking this visible memorial meal, reminding themselves of, uh, 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 reminding themselves individually, but also corporately saying, we are still following that same Jesus. We, we still submit our lives to him as Lord. We are still trusting his death and resurrection uh, for the forgiveness of our sins. And we are collectively reminding one another of who our Lord is and what he has done for us. A core part of their worship, aside from the ordinances, is that they are praising God. So they, they worship taking the ordinances, uh, practicing baptism and also the Lord's Supper. 
but also just praising God, worshiping, singing, praising God through, through prayer and encouragement to one another. This certainly would include the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs, as Paul uh, encourages the church to do in Colossians 3.16, but also just these uh, maybe spontaneous or guided declarations of thanks and praise in accordance with God's provision. This is the first aspect of the character of the church as they begin to gather in the earliest days after the apostles first preached the gospel. That they gather because of the gospel. They gather for gospel teaching. They gather for prayer. They're devoted to it. And for worship and the ordinances. Friends, we, we need to recognize this morning and, and, and know and understand that corporate worship with the whole body of Christ is necessary for the believer. Amen. Corporate worship with the whole body is necessary for you, Christian. I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. But later in the New Testament... Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. There the author of Hebrews writes this. He says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day, as the day of Christ's coming, the day of judgment drawing nearer. Corporate worship for the whole body is necessary. Or corporate worship with the whole body of believers is necessary for you, Christian. One pastor said just this week that the greatest threat to Christianity is not atheism, but apathy. The greatest threat to Christianity is not atheism, but apathy. The picture of a church, of the church, as they gather to worship here in Acts chapter 2, is anything but apathetic. It is enthusiastically engaged and attentive and devoted to the worship of God and to his son, Jesus Christ, as they purpose, on purpose, to gather together. I wonder in what powerful ways God might move among us should our devotion to the teaching of the gospel and being taught the gospel and praying together and sharing in worship and the Lord's Supper as a body of believers. I wonder, uh, I wonder what would happen should our desire for those things fully eclipse every other desire that fights to captivate our hearts today. Is the work of God in your life as you gather in this room with attentive and active worship more or less important than an extra hour of sleep on a Sunday morning? Is the reviving effect of hearing and submitting your life to the gospel each week in worship with other believers more or less important than your children's soccer, baseball, gymnastics schedules? Is giving your heart over in response to God's word with other believers, is that more or less important than getting a table without having to wait at our favorite restaurant for Sunday lunch? Is worshiping with other believers so important to you that even if you have to travel for work or are out of town on a planned vacation over a weekend on a Sunday, that you find a body of believers to worship with even when you're away from your home church? In two or three weeks, there's going to be a Lobo basketball game on a Sunday morning or a Sunday at noon. At noon! And I want to go to that game. I have been gifted with season tickets, and I love Lobo basketball. And folks, they are rolling, and they're going to play at noon on a Sunday in about three weeks. But I'm still planning to preach as long as I preach uh, normally every single week. I'll be late. I'll probably be there for the last half of the second half. But I'm going to be here for worship. Because that's way more important than the other fun things that I want to do. This is something that I have to do. This is something, Christian, you need in your life. 
The church on display in Acts didn't even count their next breath as more important than being together for these things. And the redeeming work of the gospel of Jesus, as a result, exploded with exponential fruit because of it. They counted their own lives as less important than meeting together to worship. First Baptist West Albuquerque, we don't, we don't open our doors every Sunday morning for Bible study and worship because we're required to. Not because we have to. Not even so much because every week we want to. But because we know that the full-hearted, full-throated, fully engaged worship of Christ Jesus is the most vital and important part of our existence as his disciples. Do me a favor. Take a deep breath and then let it all out. Fully expel every, every particle of air from your lungs. Push it all out as much as you can. And don't breathe in again. I'm not kidding. Breathe all out and don't breathe in again. Friends, to not care, to be apathetic about the worship of Jesus with other believers is as foolish and spiritually dangerous as not taking your next breath is to living. Breathe in. Doesn't that feel good? We need to breathe in physically to live, but we need to breathe in in worship of God and 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 uh, being reminded of the gospel of singing songs together and praying together. That is that is inhaling spiritually for us. It is life giving to breathe in and in worship as the body. The character of the early church is one of a church who gathers, but secondly, it's also a church that gives. We see the church in Acts chapter 2 giving. First of all, in verses 44 and 45, giving to meet physical needs. There we read, all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What we see here in verses 44 and 45 is not communism. It's not socialism. It's not everybody selling everything and having all communal property so that everybody is equal. Rather, what we see is sacrificial generosity in the lives of the believers. None of the believers count anything that he owns as belonging to himself or to herself. Instead, they they consider all things free to be disposed of for the good of others. This is not a text that commands us to not have uh, or or, uh, dissuades us from from having private property. Scripture never says that. But what we see here are believers who are selling their property, uh, excess goods, uh, excess possessions to meet the needs of others who don't have. We find the same thing practiced later on in Acts chapter 4 where Barnabas and others are selling excess land to give to the ministry of the apostles and for the care of the church. This practice of sacrificial generosity, of caring for other people's physical needs out of God's generous provision to us is a core characteristic of God's people, not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. If you were to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, you would find this. The Lord says, therefore, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. God desires sacrificial generosity for his people. And sacrificial generosity is exactly what we see in the church in Acts 2, giving to meet the physical needs of others. But they don't just give to meet physical needs. They also give to meet spiritual needs. Verse 42 says, they they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. The believers were devoted to the fellowship. That word is not the Baptist connotation that we, uh, does not carry the Baptist connotation of fellowship that we have, you know, with, with parties and potlucks and other things. That word fellowship is that possibly that familiar Greek word that you may know, koinonia. 
It, it means specifically participation or, or fellowship in a two-way bond. So two people, each giving in partnership towards something. It's a relationship. It denotes a relationship of mutual affection and close interpersonal involvement. That's what fellowship means. It doesn't mean just getting together to eat. It means getting together to, to be together, to partner together, to be joined together in some common task. The very meaning of fellowship then here in Acts is a partnership understood and expressed in the early church. We know that there was nothing that unified these early believers quite as much as the gospel. That was what was at the core of their gathering. That was what caused them to gather was a response to the gospel. And so then we can say with confidence that this is a gospel bond, that koinonia, fellowship in the church, is a gospel bond and a mutual gospel investment in the lives of one another. When we get to Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and 28, we'll get there later in the year. We find a, a couple, a, a Christian couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who take in a gifted but young and immature young man named Apollos to teach him in the Lord. Now, uh, Apollos was a, a good teacher, a fine preacher, but he was uh, not fully informed as to the, all of the effects of the gospel. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, seeing this young man, seeing God's gifting uh, uh, upon his life, take him in so as to say, you know, brother, you are gifted, but, but there's still some things you need to know. So we're going to pour into you. We're going to teach you these things. We're going to help you to know what you need to know because God is using you for effective gospel ministry, and we want you to be as equipped as possible. So we're going to give of ourselves for your benefit, and not just your benefit, but for the benefit of those who are going to hear you teach and to preach. Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos all shared the same faith and the same gospel, but Apollos was lacking. He had a need for maturity and growth in Christ and in the gospel itself. And this ministering couple, Priscilla and Aquila, takes him under their wing in fellowship to train and to disciple and to grow this young man to best use the gifts that God has given him. I would challenge you to change your understanding of fellowship when it comes to the church. It's good for us to get together. It's really good for us to get together. Just to be together, to visit, to, to enjoy life together. That is good. And it's good for God's people to do that, to rejoice in the things that he's given to us, to thank him for the blessings that, that he has, to just enjoy friendship that we have amongst our family of uh, brothers and sisters, our body of believers. But fellowship, gospel fellowship, is, is not uh, surrounded, it, it does not center around a crock pot, but uh, around the gospel itself. We partner together to feed one another's souls with the gospel that we might grow up and be mature in Christ. We see here in the early church, and, and, and I think it's right for us to apply to our own lives, this concept that sincere Christians intentionally give of themselves for the benefit of others. Sincere Christians intentionally give of themselves for the benefit of others. Church and Acts gives to meet physical needs. They give to meet spiritual needs. They give of themselves to see others brought up. A moment ago, I asked you to breathe out every particle of breath in your lungs. And now I want you to breathe in as much air as you can. Breathe, fill your lungs to, to overflowing if you can and hold it. If worshiping with the body of believers is as necessary to the life of the church as inhaling, then giving of ourselves for the good of others is as necessary as exhaling. Your lungs hurt yet? Holding on to that breath? Right? You can breathe. You can breathe out now. You can breathe in. You can breathe in. Big, big, deep breath. But if you don't ever breathe out, you will pass out. 
We inhale in worship as a body of believers, filling our, the lungs of our soul with praise to God and gospel teaching, and then we exhale in giving to others to meet their physical needs and especially to meet their spiritual needs. This is the rhythm of the church and of every Christian. We inhale afresh every week the gospel of Jesus and the grace of God and encouragement of the Holy Spirit when we devote ourselves to corporate worship. And then we exhale that same gospel and grace and encouragement and care into the lives of those around us who have need. We exhale grace and care as we give financially to our brothers and sisters who may be struggling. We exhale the gospel and encouragement as we meet in pairs or in small groups throughout the week with younger Christians to help them grow in the gospel and faithfulness to Jesus. A healthy church is a breathing church, breathing in, in corporate worship and prayer, breathing out in compassion and discipleship. The character of the church is a living church, breathing in as it gathers together, breathing out as it gives to the needs that are there. And a breathing church is a healthy church. A living church is a growing church. We see here finally in verse 47 that the church grows. The church grows. First of all, in verse 47, in favor with the people. Luke says that they were uh, day by day attending the temple together, uh, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Clearly, friends, this is a group of believers who love one another, who care for one another, and who are filled with awe and wonder in their worship of God. This is a compelling and attractive community because of what God has made them to be and to do. This is a testament. The the fact that the church in Acts 2 is gaining in favor with Jewish people in Jerusalem who do not know Christ is a testament to the true joy that accompanies a life changed by the gospel. It's compelling. Will everyone in Jerusalem come to love the believers and to know Christ through their witness? No. In fact, the church's birthplace will also become the site of its first martyrs. But nonetheless, this grace-transformed family of followers of Jesus is living in such a way that is utterly compelling to those who do not know Christ. People see the love, the care, the growth uh, in knowledge of God and closeness with one another as as something that cannot be other than uh, some sort of mighty work. Some would see it as a work of God. Others aren't sure what to do with it. But no one can can see the believers and think ill of them for what they are doing and how they are living. They grow in favor with the people. But also in verse 47 and more importantly, they grow by the Lord's work. The end of verse 47 says the Lord added to their number day by day. Those who are being saved church. There's no clear statement about the source of true church growth. than acts two forty seven. the Lord added to their number day by day. Those who are being saved. The church is birthed out of God's gracious plan of redemption, salvation completed by his son, Jesus, who is God in human form. It is the spirit of God that then empowers believers, beginning with the apostles and those first group of disciples to be witnesses to the risen Jesus. All of our salvation is from God. All of our salvation is for God. All of our, our, our members of, of any local church are given by God as they place faith in Christ. And we gather for God's glory in the world, not for our own building of our own kingdoms, our own building of our own influence, but for God's in the world. If God grows, if a church grows, it's because God grows it. If a church shrinks, it's because God shrinks it. The Lord is in charge of all of this. 
The church grows in favor with the people. The church grows by the Lord's work and not by the work of man. But the church also grows, and here we're making a, an inference upon the text, but the church is growing through sharing the gospel. Some would say, oh, the Lord's adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So the, the growth of the church is, is all God's work. So why don't we just sit back and let God do what he's going to do? And if people will be saved, then they'll be saved. But that's not what the church in Acts is committed to. That's not what we see demonstrated in the lives of the apostles and the church throughout the book of Acts. Friends, God does not grow his church by happenstance, nor does he bring people to salvation spontaneously, but through the Holy Spirit-empowered testimony of the believers. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you haven't memorized it by now, you're getting close. Jesus says, I, the, the, that's not what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will tell people about me. What is certain from Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved, is that God was daily adding new believers to the church because the believers who composed the church, were daily sharing the gospel of Christ. That good news that God who is in heaven, who created every man, woman, and child to know him, to love him, to worship him. That's what he designed us for. The good news that that even though God made us that way, we have broken that relationship. We have made ourselves unable to fellowship with God in that way because of our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against him. The gospel is the good news that even though we've broken our relationship with God by sin and our consciences convict us of that every single day, that God has made a way for us to be right with him, for our sins to be forgiven, for our relationship with him to be restored. This he does by sending his son, Jesus, to take on flesh, to live the perfect life, a perfect life in obedience to God's law, in total dependence upon the father, that he might fulfill the law in himself. And then as as a an innocent and pure sacrifice, give his life for the sins of those who have not kept the law. Which, by the way, it's all of us. It's you, it's me, it's every one of the nearly 7 billion people that live on the earth now and have ever lived. Christ died for their sins and was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and the effects of sin, which is death. So that all who trust in Jesus, who repent of their sins, as Peter says, place their faith in Christ, will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll enter into a new relationship, a new life with God, restored and renewed, reconciled to your creator. This is the good news that the apostles are preaching. This is the good news that the church continues to preach. This is the good news that we must, if we desire to God, if we desire for God to add daily those who are being saved to our number, this is the good news that we must proclaim. Friend, if you don't know this good news today, if you don't know this Jesus that we are talking about, if you've not trusted in him, you're still separated from God. But this is the good news. God wants to be united to you by faith, uh, by your faith in his son, Jesus. Friend, don't let this day go by without knowing where your hope lies, where your hope rests. Place it in Christ. Be be reconciled to God and, and join the number of those who have been and are being saved. Friends, our our hope for salvation is not in church membership. This church, no local church can do anything to save you. I can't do anything to save you. God has done everything to save you. 
So if your hope for salvation is in being a, a church member, your hope for salvation is in showing up at church every week and, and, and giving an offering and, and those sorts of things. If your hope of a right relationship with God is in anything but the person and work of Jesus Christ, your hope is misplaced and you will be constantly disappointed. But if your hope is in Christ for salvation, in Jesus, the Son of God, for your forgiveness, you will never be disappointed. As Paul says in Romans 10, the, the one who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and the Lord will never put that one to shame. Church of First Baptist West Albuquerque, know this. God makes attractive and God grows those churches who rely upon, who proclaim, and who live out the gospel with counter-cultural consistency. God makes attractive and God grows those churches who rely upon the gospel. We trust in nothing more, nothing less than Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for us. We proclaim that gospel. There's no better news for the world than the news that God saves sinners through faith in Christ. And we live out the implications of that gospel in a countercultural way. The gospel calls us to love and to care for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to seek the defense of the vulnerable and to care for the least among us. We live out the implications of the gospel with countercultural consistency, never deterring, never turning away from what Christ has commanded us to do. We look at the church in Acts 2 and we wonder what's going to happen from now what? What will come of this? Well, nearly 100 years later, 100 years after the events that we read here in Acts chapter 2, in about 125 A.D., there was a Christian philosopher and theologian. His name was Aristides, and he wrote a letter. It's called the Apology of Aristides to the emperor at the time, Emperor Hadrian. And in his letter, he writes this, and this is an extended portion of his apology for uh, his, his defense for the church. But listen to it and see the consistency between what Aristides says about who the church is and what they do and what we read in Acts chapter 2. And think about, church, is this who we are as well? This is what he writes. The Christians know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they receive commandments, which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whatsoever they, uh, whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not do to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat, for they are pure. And they comfort all their oppressors and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen, bondwomen, or children, through love toward them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. 
And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy, uh, supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them. And for their food and their drink they offer thanksgiving to him. And if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. And when a child has been born to one of them, they give thanks to God. And if moreover it happened to die in childhood, they give thanks to God the more as, one, as for one who has passed through the world without sins. And further, if they see that any one of them dies in his ungodliness or in his sins, for him they grieve bitterly as sorrow, and sorrow as for one who goes to meet his doom. The character of the church in Acts chapter 2 is of one that gathers for worship, for, remind, for, for, for being reminded of the gospel and for teaching the gospel, for breathing in God's grace and his truth. It is a church that is characterized by the fact that it gives. It gives of its uh, finances, of its resources to meet the physical needs of others and especially of its time and energy for the spiritual needs and spiritual growth of others. Finally, it is a church that grows. Not because they're anything special, but because the God who has saved them has all power to save any whom he calls to himself by faith in the gospel that the church so dutifully and faithfully and lovingly proclaims and lives out in the world. Oh, that we might be a church that looks like Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. Oh, that we might reflect the character of the church that is seen even just a hundred years later from the apology of Aristides, a church giving of themselves for the care of others, but, but above all, holding the gospel high for all to see, proclaiming it to those that need to hear it. Would that God would do that in us, First Baptist West Albuquerque. Let's pray.